We're looking again at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In this uh, particular day, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit in the new birth, what it means to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at this from a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you want to take one of the uh, Bibles there and turn to that passage. In verse 14, Paul writes to this church, for the love of, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one, one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's always a tongue twister for me. I typically study out of the New American Standard Bible, and then when I turn to the New International Version, the uh, word choice and the sentence and layout of, of these the structure of these verses are uh, a little, little tricky for me as I try and read it here. Now, we're looking at the new birth and the Holy Spirit, and we're looking at this in the whole concept that everything that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives is a result of Jesus' work in his life, and now Jesus' desire that his life be uh, remade in each one of us so that the Holy Spirit works to accomplish in us everything that Christ has accomplished for us. Now, all of this began on the birthday of the church that we call Pentecost when Christ was enthroned in heaven sat down at the right hand of his Father and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit which he and the Father jointly poured out upon the church. And you see the effects of that on the day of Pentecost. And we spent a, our uh, last time together discussing that. And then the Holy Spirit is given to the church, given to us as individual Christians as an earnest, as a pledge, as a guarantee uh, of 
everything that's going to be finally realized when Christ returns at the end of the age. So that we have this pledge, this seal, and we know that we belong to God and we belong to Christ and that all of this is going to come to the glorious end that we see uh, portrayed in the New Testament. Now, there are a lot of ways to look at this. If we could say it, there are multiple perspectives on this whole business of becoming a Christian uh, under the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of them are uniform in what is the result of their various expressions. Let me refer you to one of these perspectives, that of Paul, that's in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 13 and 14. And if some of you want an outline afterwards, I've put some on this second table right here uh, if you want to look at it. But in this passage in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, For he, God, delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of our sins, the forgiveness of sins. Now when we look at this, we, we see some rather peculiar language here. The language of delivery in the language of delivery that's very similar to the idea of birth. So uh, a young woman uh, is carrying a child and let's say all goes well and nine months have uh, come to an end and she goes to wherever, a hospital, uh, maybe to some kind of a clinic, maybe delivers at home, Maybe there's a doctor there, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's a midwife, whatever it is, and then all of a sudden, into the world comes a new life. Boy, girl, maybe one of each, you don't know. But what do we know as we look at this? Well, it says that God delivered us. Whoa, he delivered us. Now, what, what did that little baby that was born What participation did it have actively in its own delivery? And you would say, well, really none. That child was confined in its mother's womb. All things being natural and going along properly, and certain things happened in the mother's body, and things moved, and Through the birth canal comes the child, and the child comes into the world, and the child is born. The child's passive. The others around the child are active. We were delivered. That's what's being said here. Can you imagine a child saying, or an adult saying, yes, I delivered myself? You would say, well, how ridiculous, how impossible. But yet people take credit today for their own salvation. And what we need to see is, no, that this new birth is the work of the Holy Spirit. God delivers us. And he delivers us out of a dominion of darkness. This would be the dominion of Satan. Uh, Now, notice the next language here. 
He transferred us. Now, this could be uh, the language of enterprise. It could be a militaristic language. I think of when I was in the Marine Corps and I finished my recruit training at Paris Island, South Carolina. After those weeks, they gave me orders. The orders were a transfer, and I was transferred from Paris Island to Camp Lejeune, and then later from Camp Lejeune, I was transferred all the way out to California to Camp Pendleton. Uh, I was under orders, and I was moving through those as the military was transferring me. Now, you can imagine in the Marine Corps being a private and going to whoever and saying, I'd like to speak to the higher-ups. I'd like a different transfer. I'd like to determine where I go. Well, they'd look at you like you would pretty much didn't get it after 8 to 12 weeks of basic training. No, the language here is that God did this miraculous work of transferring us. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, but he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And that's where we are today. We are a part of that kingdom that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this, we have all these things that are referred to here. We have redemption from the bondage to sin, and we have the forgiveness of the guilt of sin. It's a perspective. It's telling us what God has done through the Holy Spirit in making us a Christian. Now, Paul speaks of his own conversion. And if we turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, in this passage, Paul speaks of himself in not in the just the most comforting ways. But he says here, beginning in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul is talking about himself here. He was a blasphemer. Now, that's not blasphemy against God the Father. He's blaspheming Jesus Christ. That's what's being spoken of here. Is, is not only is he a blasphemer, <laughs> blasphemer, 
he is a persecutor of the church, uh, persecuting Jesus. And it says that he is a violent man. One of the other translators says he's a violent aggressor. Now, if you're looking at this guy and you're in your Sunday school and you happen to know this guy and he's out here in Macon or wherever and you say, this Paul guy, I think he's on the verge of becoming a Christian. What about you? What do you think? What are you going to say to me? You must be nuts. This guy going to become a Christian? I don't think so. But that's what Paul's saying here. This is the kind of person he was. Now, one of the things that I want to call your attention to in these verses is the language that says here that his conversion serves as an example for all those who would believe in Jesus for eternal life. Now, one time I was having a discussion with a lady who was not a member of the church I was pastoring at Lake Oconee, but she and her husband were very faithful visitors in that church. She did not believe that the work of conversion was totally the work of the Holy Spirit. And she was convinced that she was very active in her own conversion. And we would banter back and forth, tried not to argue, but banter gently back and forth about this. And so I said to her, well, what about Paul? Well, she said, Paul's conversion is an exceptional case. Well, then, boy, she was in a pickle because I opened up to this passage and I said, no. Paul says that his conversion was an example to all who would believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that kept her quiet for a while. <laughs> Not for long, but for a while. Now, you see what's being said here. Here's this man, and this is his character, and now he's a Christian. Well, Paul had a person that thought that, well, Paul was this man's hero. That man was Dr. Luke. And so Dr. Luke, in Acts 9, records the events of Paul's conversion. And so it says here, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. 
For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hand on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you are coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up, and he was baptized. Now, that's a pretty amazing sequence of events there. Here's this guy that we would have said is the least likely person to be converted, and he is converted. Now, what is the work of the Holy Spirit doing here? Well, if we take the outline of the facts that we see, we know that Paul, Saul, was a scholar of the Old Testament. He knew all the Old Testament messages, but he did not understand them. We know that he had some understanding of who Jesus was and knew Jesus' claims to be the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures, and we know that Saul had rejected Jesus. Now, that's just the bare facts that we can see here. If we are to look at another passage back in chapter 6 and 7 of the book of Acts, we would see the, the witness of the, one of the first deacons, Stephen, and how Stephen was put on trial and how Stephen testified of his faith in Christ Jesus. And we see that Paul was right there at that trial listening to Stephen. Then later Stephen is martyred and we see that Paul is a witness to the martyrdom of Stephen. But yet, this has had no effect. Now, if we think of people that we know, we've prayed for them, nothing's happened. We've witnessed to them, and nothing's happened. And we may have given up on them because nothing's happened. But what we see here is the norm that Jesus makes himself known to Paul. And what happens when Jesus makes himself known to Paul? Paul believes. Now, take me as an example. So I'm growing up in South Florida. 
uh, three different Presbyterian churches, all pretty much like this one, good godly pastors, godly Sunday school teachers, all of these people are telling me about Jesus. And I'm growing up in that context. My mom and dad are telling me about Jesus. Mom used to run the vacation Bible schools every summer. And they were the two-week long ones that have uh, kind of gone the way of the past. And w not only was she running them, but we had to go early because we had to go to parts of the community that I wasn't familiar with to pick young guys and girls up. And we didn't get home until late because we had to take those kids back home afterwards. I'm telling you, vacation Bible school would wear you out after two weeks. Now, that was the context in which I grew up. 